0: If you'll take your Bibles and please open to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel, go back to your Old Testament. Um, We're going to be in the life of David for the coming days. And so if you remember, some of you can't remember very long back, and that's okay. You might not even know if I'm repeating myself, and that's even better for your pastor. But um, we did a series about three years ago on the life of David called A Man After God's Own Heart. And we basically finished... Um, all of David's life of running from Saul from the time he was anointed until the time that Saul died. And so last time we met, we finished with David David basically on the run from Saul and Saul lying dead on the battlefield. And so now we're going to pick up with David's life as now he ascends to the throne of Israel. And so this morning we're going to find David in Samuel chapter 2. He is about to be anointed king over Judah, which is my title this morning. David being anointed king over Judah. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now, a couple of things to remember. I'm going to go back and try to catch you up to speed. A couple things to remember as we dive back into the life of David. Okay, first, let's remember the context of 2 Samuel. We left David three years ago weeping over the death of Saul. He was weeping, even though Saul had attempted to kill him many times and even though David had had a right to to the throne. David is weeping over the death of Saul. Now Saul had been the king that the people of Israel had sinfully wanted so that they could be like all of the nations around them. Israel had been set up with God as their king, but they rejected that and wanted their own human king. So God gave them what they wanted. Be careful what you ask. God may actually give you what you want, and it might be the ruin of your life. So they rejected God and wanted their own king, and they got what they asked. They had they had a king, they got what they had asked for. They had a king like all the nations in more ways than they expected. Saul did some good things, but ultimately he refused to obey the Lord, and God rejected him as king, and instead chose a shepherd boy from the house of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, the youngest of all of Jesse's sons, named David. And God chose him, not because he was nearly eight feet tall, like Saul, who was head and shoulders above every other man in Israel, but because God looked on his heart. David was a shepherd, the youngest son. David had served Saul faithfully in his army. And Saul knew, Saul knew that God had chosen David to be the next king. So Saul spent years trying to hunt down David and kill him. Though David had opportunities to kill Saul and continually spared his life. David refused, this is a lesson in our own lives, David refused to lift his hand against God's king Saul or to take revenge because he trusted God himself to defend him against his enemies. So that's first. Second, as we jump into this study... Second, you need to know that David is incredibly important in biblical history. He's incredibly important. God himself called David a man after God's own heart. This wasn't, again, because David was more righteous or more holy. This was because David knew who he was in light of who God was. David had, David had incredible victories in his life, like when he faced Goliath. And he also had incredible failures, Incredible failures where he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had Uriah, her husband, murdered on the front lines. But through all of that, David was a man who knew God, who knew God's commandments, who knew his sins and his faults, and a man who walked in repentance and faith. We see this throughout his life and we see this throughout his writings in the Psalms. That's number two. Number three, what you have to remember David's story, and this is where I want to kind of stick the knife in a little bit, okay? David's story is not my story, and it's not your story. That's important. You and I are not David, okay? Can I get an amen? You're not David. I'm not David, all right? So we're not studying the life of David so that you can learn to slay your spiritual giants or anything like that. David, hear me, David's life only matters in the greater and grander picture and story of the Bible. You see, David is not the hero of the Bible. Jesus is. The Bible is very clear about the faults and failures of everybody in the Scriptures. There are no perfect pictures in the Bible save one, and that is Jesus. There are no other heroes. Sure, there are characters we should study and learn from. But all of them, hear me, all of them, including David, simply point their fingers towards the ultimate king who will come through his line, through the line of David, that is Jesus. So let's pick up here in 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at um, verses 1 through 11, and I'll break it apart and read it as we go. So first we're going to begin with a covenantal kingdom. Notice that we begin here with a covenantal kingdom. Look there in verses 1 through 4. He says there, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now first, I want to give you four quick things here. First, it is significant here how David began his reign as king. Notice that David begins by inquiring of the Lord. David knows that God has promised that he would sit on the throne of Israel. David has known this from the time he was a boy when Samuel came to his house and anointed his head with oil in front of all of his family in Judah. David has known this for years, ever since he was a ruddy and handsome youth. And now that Saul is dead, he's died on the battlefield on Mount Geboah, just the previous chapter, shouldn't David just simply walk into, in, back into the cities of Israel as king? Shouldn't he just presume his rightful place? And the answer for David is a resounding no. No. David does not presume or assume in pride that it is his right to take the throne of Israel. So what does he do? He begins by inquiring of the Lord, most likely through the the priest Abiathar who had been traveling with him. And what does the Lord say to David? David? What does God tell him? That's the issue at hand. David wants to know from the Lord what he should do. What are God's purposes? What is God's will? Is now the right time? Or should I remain out in Ziklag among the Philistines? Now David has proven throughout his very difficult life to be a man who intentionally seeks to inquire of the Lord and to honor and obey his word. That in itself is a lesson for us. Now, this is in stark contrast. How David begins reigning here in verses 1 through 4 is in stark contrast to how King Saul had operated as king. Now, the prophet Samuel, who also anointed Saul, when he went to Saul and anointed him in 1 Samuel 15, this is what he told King Saul. He says, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Those are the instructions of the prophet Samuel to the newly anointed king Saul. What are the instructions? Listen to the words of the Lord. The irony here is that Saul, whose name literally means to inquire. That's what Saul means in Hebrew, to ask or to inquire. The irony is that Saul did not ask or inquire or listen to the words of the Lord. In fact, the last time we saw Saul make any kind of inquiry was, was just a few days prior to this text, in seconds, uh, back in 1 Samuel, um, when he goes to a necromancer in Endor, which was strictly forbidden. So even when Saul goes to inquire of the Lord, he does it through illegal means in the Old Testament. And it was there, which was just a few days prior to this text, that God appears and says that I have rejected you as king, and tomorrow you will die in the battle." And now we find Saul slain on the battlefield, and David inquiring of the Lord, "What shall I do?" Saul lived a life of presumption upon the Lord, and David, in contrast, chooses to stop here and inquire, to listen. And to obey, again, a very practical life lesson for all of us. Are we going to presume upon the Lord's will? Are we going to act in haste? Are we going to choose to do what we presume or desire? Are we going to pause and say, Lord, I belong to you. I'm going to obey you. You speak. Your servant is listening. It's cu- it's, that's what's happening. So it's significant how David began his, re- his reign by inquiring of the Lord. Second, it is significant here in this text what David is walking away from, what David is leaving behind. Now, when David inquires of the Lord, he asks a question, shall I go up to the cities of Judah, back to his homeland? The reason is because David, if you remember the story, has been living and moving among the Philistines in Ziklag. It is at this point that David is leaving all of his connections from the Philistines. It is a clear break with David's associations. And David, his wives, the company of mighty men, all those that have been constantly on the run from Saul, though they've been out raiding in the Negev against the ancient enemies of Israel, the Canaanites. Now they're moving back to Israel. No more alliances with Israel. Um, with uh, pagan Philistines, no more running and hiding from the hunting parties of Paul, no more being in exile from his own brothers and sisters. David is choosing now, by the word of the Lord, to move back among his own people within the borders of Israel in obedience to God. This is a huge step for David. And third, it is significant where David is going, it's significant how he began. It's significant what he's leaving, and it's significant where he's going. He tells him, God tells him, David asks a generic question, right? Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? There's lots of them. And God says, go up. And David said, that's not clear enough. Which one, God, do you want me to go to? And he says, to Hebron. Now, some scholars argue that David chose Hebron because it was the largest city And the most influential city in Judah at this time. Or he could have chosen it because uh, Hebron was a city of refuge that offered protection from those who might take vengeance on David. Since David had Saul's crown from an Amalekite in chapter 1 who had brought it to David. Remember David killed that Amalekite for lifting his hand against Saul. So it could have been rumored, maybe, that David had ordered an Amalekite to kill Saul so he could be king. So there are those who might want to seek vengeance on David. So David is seeking a city of solitude, a city of sanctuary, um, a city of refuge. Or it could have been another reason David's, um, David's wife, Abigail, was the widow of a Calebite and Hebron was a Calebite city. So David could have been going to Hebron for any of those very practical reasons. But there's more to it than what is practically laid out here in the text. Those reasons could have been involved. involved. However, I think there is more theological reasons than practical reasons. You see, Hebron, if you were to study your Old Testament, Hebron was the city of Abraham. It was at Hebron that Abraham had built an altar to the Lord by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron. It was there that the Lord visited Abraham and promised that he would have a son through Sarah. Sarah died in Hebron and was buried in a cave east of the city. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah are all buried at Hebron. It's the home of Israel's patriarchs. In fact, it is the only piece of land from all of the promised land that belonged to Abraham. So David goes back to the place, hear me, where God's covenant promises to Abraham will now continue Through David to all of the nations beginning here. You Remember God had made the promise to Abraham that through you and your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here David goes to Hebron where he is anointed to continue the promises made to Abraham. And I think this is why when you turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus. He says that Jesus was the son of David who was the son of Abraham. Now, that's important. And fourth, so it's important where David is going, to Hebron. And then fourth and finally, it is incredibly significant that David is now king. It is incredibly significant that after all of these years, David is now king. 1 Samuel 2.4 is one of the most significant historical markers in your Bibles. Look at that sentence. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now, as people study the Old Testament, as we teach our children the Old Testament, as you talk about it out in the places, people typically remember and they mark significant moments in their understanding of history. We do it the same thing. We remember World War II. We remember the Great Depression. We remember historical markers. We remember 9-11. We remember all of these things. Well, when you study your Bible, people tend to remember things like this. They, they mark creation in Genesis. They mark the fall. They mark the call of Abraham, Moses and the Exodus, Joshua and the conquest of the Promised Land, the building of the temple, the exile of God's people to Babylon, the birth of Jesus. Those are all incredible historical markers. What is missing from this list usually is the historical and theological significance of David being anointed king in Judah. This is one of the most historical and and theological sentences in your Bible. Let me tell you why. Let's just pause for a second to think of all of human history. This is the first time in all of human history that God's chosen king is ruling over God's people on earth. This is the first time it's ever happened. Saul was not God's chosen king. This is the first time in all of history that God's king is ruling on earth. This is it. This is the prototype for Jesus' coming kingdom and reign. David's reign in Hebron is the mustard seed of God's kingdom, visible and present on earth for the first time in all of history. Because David is king, this is why it matters in your Bible, because David is king, David's heir, Jesus the Christ will one day come and sit on this man's throne. That is what is going to happen. This here in 2 Samuel, we see a covenantal kingdom. A kingdom based on God's promises to his people through David. David is a king that God himself has chosen. It's a covenantal kingdom. Second, this is a compassionate kingdom. Notice here that this is a compassionate kingdom. Look at verses 4 again, 4 through 7. Look what happens in the story. There's a turn here after David is anointed king. So what does David do as soon as he is anointed king in Ebron? It says, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord. Because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. Take courage. For Saul your Lord is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me as king over them. You might just glance over that in your Bible. And that's why you always have to read more deeply. What we get here is another glimpse of what kind of king David will be. We get another glimpse of why God called him a man after his own heart. And this is shown here in how David chooses to treat his enemies. We are told here that the men of Jabesh Gilead went and rescued the body of Saul from the Philistines. Now, you might go, why are these men David's enemies? Well, let me tell you why. If you were to flip back to 1 Samuel 31, so just turn back probably three, one page in your Bible. Turn back one page to 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31. By the way, I love the sound of Bibles turning. That is a great sound in the house of God. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 8. You'll get a full picture of how all of this happened, Okay. So these men go to rescue Saul's body. It says, The next day, when the, Philistine, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body on the wall of Beth-shan. But when the inhabitants of jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan. And there they came to Jabesh and buried them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So here's the question. Why would all these valiant men from Jabesh-Gilead do this? Why would they risk life and limb and march 20 miles round trip in the night not to save King Saul's life or the life of his sons, but simply to take his body and give it a proper burial. The answer is because they were fiercely loyal to Saul. Their loyalty all, goes all the way back to 1 Samuel 11, where Saul, filled with the Spirit at that time, rescued them from destru- destruction from the Ammonites. And they never forgot how God had saved them through one of Saul's shimmering moments of courage and obedience. They were only alive because Saul had, done an act of, of, had took an act of courage in 1 Samuel 11 and went and rescued them from the hand of the Ammonites. And they never forgot how, God, how Saul had done that. And because they were fiercely loyal to Saul, they're technically David's enemies. Now notice here the winsomeness and wisdom of King David. What kind of king will David be? He begins with heartfelt gratitude for the kindness and loyalty that they had rightfully shown to King Saul. David prays that they are blessed by the Lord for this kindness and that they are rewarded for it by the Lord and by David. So David here offers an olive branch. In fact, David proposes a treaty of friendship. The phrase, do a goodness to you, literally means a treaty of goodness. Then David extends an invitation. He invites them. He says, Take courage, men. The men of Judah have anointed me as king. You join me. Join me. Let your hands be strong and be courageous, men. For Saul, your master, has died. What's more, the house of Judah has anointed me as king. He invites them to be a part of his kingdom. So what this means here, David isn't holding grudges. David isn't holding grudges. He isn't going to begin his rule by cleaning house or seeking revenge on those who might have killed him if given the chance. David, is king now in Judah, could have marched his men all the way back to Jabesh. and squashed any rebellion that might have started there. And David doesn't do that. No, instead, he graciously offers them an invitation to be the first group outside of Judah in the north to recognize him as king. The men of Jabesh were gutsy, risk-takers. They were loyal servants to Saul. And David asked them to take another gutsy risk and courageously join him. And here's my point. How does David begin his reign? David is king in Judah, unquestioned. He is king among his friends and relatives, but David's heart is on all of Israel. He doesn't simply want to rule over Judah. God has called him to rule over all of Israel, and he's going to do it winsomely and with wisdom waiting on God's providence and not by the edge of a sword. And I want to say here, if you're tracking along with me, you know how I love to connect this to God's kingdom. This is also true for the future heir of David. In the person of Jesus, and the gospel that he brings. You see, Jesus is also winsome and compelling. Jesus says in Matthew, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now when Jesus says those words, he's king. He is the son of God and the king of Israel and Jesus certainly makes demands, does he not as king? Does he not demand absolute submission? Come and follow me, take up your cross. Does he not say take my yoke upon you? It is... It might be easy and light because He's in it with you, but it still makes demands. But at the same time, isn't there an incredible allure and an incredible attractiveness and winsomeness in His voice and in His invitation and in His character? Because in Jesus, we see the heart behind the demands. And we see that Jesus is also compassionate even to His enemies. His gospel is peace And his invitation is for all people. In fact, the first words after his resurrection is that all the world is invited into a relationship by faith with the very very king that they have rejected and crucified. Jesus doesn't come immediately in judgment on those who murdered him. No, he offers up the gospel invitation that says, come to me. I offer amnesty and forgiveness. And I offer friendship and a family name to anyone who comes. You see, Christ's heart is on the nations. And even now, Jesus commands us as his followers to love our enemies and even pray for those that persecute us. We don't seek their ruin, but their reconciliation with God. We see the beginning of... We see the beginning of David's kingship, the beginning of David's kingdom is a kingdom of compassion. Right here in 2 Samuel 2. And lastly, what we see here is a kingdom in conflict. We see a covenantal kingdom, a compassionate kingdom, and a kingdom in conflict. Look at verses 8-11. through How the text takes an ominous turn. There's much rejoicing in Judah, there's olive branches being extended across Israel. And then look at verses 8 through 11. But, but, conflict enters again into David's saga. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanahim, And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Conflict enters the story again. Abner, who had led many hunts against David and his men takes Saul's son and anoints him as king. He seeks to continue the line of Saul over all of Israel. And with this, he continues Saul's animosity and hostility towards David and ultimately divides Israel. But more than that, more than that, this this act is an act of direct rebellion against God. This is an act of rebellion against Yahweh. Abner was there outside of the cave when David had spared Saul. And Saul openly said in front of him and all of Israel that was there with him, he says to David, I know that you will be king after me. And Abner refuses. He chooses his own way. He anoints Saul's son as king over Israel. So Abner here joins the likes of the other rulers of Israel, of the likes of Herod, The likes of Pontius Pilate and others in saying that they do not want this man to rule over them. So they choose another. But I want you to look at the end of verse 10. Look at verse 10. Look again. There's another but. But the house of Judah followed David. And I want to say again, this is our place today as God's people. We follow Jesus No matter who else the world claims as king, no matter what other path the world may choose to follow, it is our place as God's people to follow our king, Jesus. Though everyone else in the world chooses their own king, chooses their own rulers, chooses their own morals, chooses their own standards, it is our place to follow Jesus as king. Though none go with me, yet I will follow him. And so here what we see is the prototype of Jesus' kingdom as as David is anointed king over Judah. Now let me close this way. When Jesus steps on the scene hundreds of years later, Jesus comes with the message that God's kingdom is at hand. Jesus steps onto the scene saying this, Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is not a geopolitical kingdom with national borders or national identity. No. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus brings his kingdom to earth by ruling and reigning in the hearts of his people by the Spirit. Wherever there are people who are under Jesus' lordship and God's Spirit rules and reigns in their heart, then God's kingdom is present among those people This church is an outpost of God's kingdom in the world. It is not the only one. Oh, there are tens of thousands across this world. But every church is to be an outpost of God's kingdom where God's spirit reigns in the hearts and lives of those there. And we are living testimonies to the power of God and the rule of God and the kingdom of God as we live for Christ in his kingdom. And this kingdom is not like this world. Jesus' kingdom is this upside-down, inside-out kingdom where the first are last and the greatest of all are the servants of all. This kingdom is not like this where we seek our first and we seek all glory. But no, in God's kingdom, we lay it all down. We willingly lay down our lives and take up our crosses for the glory of Christ and the good of others. And we see the mustard seed beginnings of this kingdom right here in the life of David. And it is David right here in these seminal beginnings who points to that kingdom. Christ's kingdom that will one day come. And that is our calling here today. Our calling is to fall in line behind Jesus our Lord and follow him by faith. Jesus calls us as disciples. And we follow Him as Lord. And we do that by turning from our sin, relinquishing our place as Lord of our lives, and asking Jesus to reign in our lives as King. And if if you're in this place and you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus as King, then right now you are in open rebellion to Christ. And that is called sin. And that is why Jesus died in the place of sinners, to graciously offer us forgiveness. Just as David offered the olive branch to Jabesh Gilead, Jesus stands with arms open and says, Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me and you will find what life is truly a life. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. It is the thief who has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. So I invite you this morning to come to Christ. And if you are a believer, then I invite you as Judah, though none, el- no, though none others follow Jesus, that you will say, but as for me and my house, we will follow Christ. Because it is worth it. Would you pray with me? Father, it is our desire to follow Jesus. And we are thankful that we can look back into the Old Testament and see flawed pictures, but also pictures that are shadows and echoes, and they point us to the hope that we see in Jesus. So, Father, we ask now that as you would draw near to us, and Father, as we study and as we learn, that we would avail ourselves to your Spirit, that your Word would be illuminated before us, and that, Father, we would follow Christ. Though, though none others go with us, we will follow Him. And, Father, we pray that you would speak to us now. Go with us as we leave in a few moments. And may Christ be Lord of each heart and each life as we seek to live for Him. We pray this in Christ's name.